welcome to Running Off the Rails. My name's Ariel Rasco. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. In this episode, we're going to be discussing a new class published by MCDM. It's called the Ill Rigger, and it has three subclasses, so there's a lot of material to get through. I've actually played this as part of the beta test. I had a lot of fun. It's very thematic. We'll get into all kinds of details about it. Ray, can you give us a intro to what the Ill Rigger is? Yeah, so the Ill Rigger is a anti-paladin. What I mean by that is it is a it's a hell knight. Something I've seen is folks saying, "Oh, well why not just play an evil paladin?" The Ill Rigger is not that. The the Ill Rigger is something onto its itself both from an abilities standpoint and from a narrative standpoint. So we're going to talk a lot about the abilities, so I'll just start off with the the narrative elements and we can get that out of the way. Very much unlike other player classes in D&D or kind of like uh, divine player classes in D&D, you do choose a, a deity to pledge yourself to, but you aren't, your loyalty isn't to that deity. You are a knight of hell and you serve hell before you serve your deity. Your deity or your your kind of like devil lord that you pledge yourself to or your demon lord that you pledge yourself to, they kind of like have this long lasting obligation to give you power as kind of like an agreement between all of the different cities of hell. So what what does that mean? That means that every city of hell, every demon lord has their own kind of like flavor of Illrigger. But these Illriggers serve kind of like each other and the best interests of hell before they serve the interests of their individual patrons. So something that comes to mind there is kind of like if you've ever read the Stormlight archives where you have the all of the different high princes, they're all allied together, but they still have their like squabbles. It would be as if all of those different high princes had their own like specialized units that when hell goes to war against another like plane of existence or something that's going to threaten hell, you would have this army and each different like flavor of ill rigor would serve like a very specific purpose in the army. So just to talk on some of the the subclasses real real quickly, you have like the painkillers, which are basically the frontline Darth Vader style generals of your army. Then you have the shadow masters, which are kind of like your assassins or your spies. And then you have the architects of ruin, which are kind of like your tactical spellcasters and and battlefield strategists. So the the main difference is like you're not you're not a a champion of a specific god. You are a a soldier or a general who represents like an entire plane of existence or the interest of the interests of hell. It's very different. It has this very kind of like chivalrous and lawful feel to it, but obviously you're representing hell, so you're you're going to be very evil. It it's a very very strong structure for a lawful evil knight of hell. Whereas the the paladin even if you, you're playing a Vengeance Paladin or an Oath of the Crown Paladin, a lot of your abilities don't really resonate well with that kind of 
power fantasy because you have things like lay on hands which are which allow you to like heal hit points and like the the paladin is always very like divine and has like a good feeling to it even if you are playing like an evil subclass so the the ulrigger is definitely this like really strong thematic class that like i just i'm so compelled by it like and i could even see creating kind of like a heaven version of the Illrigger, which obviously would be more similar to the Paladin, but would be very different in and of its own right. Yeah, it's really interesting you bring up the Stormlight Archives as an example, because I think the Knights Radiant almost paint a picture of these really deified commanders that the Illrigger could be so good for. You can really have this creature from hell that is here to influence the earth i think that's a really amazing place to play with in the DD creative space that hasn't been used so much i think paladins as we typically see them are knights for a kingdom sometimes with you know a divine right it's you know a bit like a knight in shining armor whereas the illrigger does not feel that way so i do think that it is different enough from a paladin to really give a lot of people inspiration to make a character that they wouldn't have made if they were playing a vengeance paladin i really like the idea of a creature that has this charisma you know that's part of the class build to interact with the world but the perspective that they're interacting with it from is you know what is good for hell <laughs> i i just think that's a really fun character concept like what would a character that is advocating for you know like hell do in the material world i think it's a great question to ask a player yeah it's it's just so inspiring and and i th this is a theme that we see a lot with mcdm's materials a very strong foundation in narrative and thematics that that inspire you to do interesting things in your game even if you don't take the exact piece of content that's being offered up and inserted into your your game as is um, there's just so much like imagination juice here yeah and i think another thing we see with mcdm is not just a great concept but also interesting mechanics to back that concept up we'll see as we go through a lot of these subclasses there are very specific mechanics that back up the character you want to create. And sometimes our criticism or, you know, notes on what we think of these mechanics exist in a way that we feel, you know, maybe this wasn't done perfectly, which is just natural. Everybody has kind of their own idea of what they want to see from a mechanic. But what you have to give so much credit to the MCDM team for is that the mechanics always are really interesting and back up the narrative and make the player feel that the power fantasy that they want to fulfill or just the uh, role-playing fantasy that they want to fulfill is backed by the mechanics, which I think Wizards actually doesn't do so successfully a lot of the time. I, th I think that's exactly correct. I think that the, the balance that MCDM strikes is they, they always give you something that is effective and potent and accomplishes the fantasy whereas wizards maybe because everything that they publish is is kind of like final it's in the game it's very hard to publish an errata especially because all of their content is published in books once you come out with something you you can't really walk something back it always seems as though wizards of the coast is 
is is so afraid of releasing something too good that they they sometimes like kind of miss the mark on the the fantasy that they were trying to deliver with like a new subclass or or a new unearthed arcana right i'm thinking of something like fine steed for paladin where wizards of the coast creates a really great fantasy moment for paladins where you summon a you know horse maybe from you know the feywild or wherever you're getting this magical creature from but then they fall a little bit short on mounted combat whereas mcdm specifically released their own mounted combat design where it does not fall short in terms of what you can do it you know it goes the other direction where they give you so many things that you can do with so many different creatures it's uh i think the fantasy fulfillment is really prioritized at mcdm and i i like it i think if you want to tweak something for yourself if you feel something is not quite right for your table then you do that at your table, and that's a little bit how Dungeons & Dragons ha has always worked. You you figure out what's right for your table. But if the power fantasy isn't there, if the creativity and pushing the limits isn't there in the first place, sometimes it's harder to get it right. It's easier, I think, sometimes to scale back than to scale forward. Right, right, right. Like, Wizards of the Coast says, like, here's this thing. It might not be powerful enough. Uh, <laughs> whereas MCDM says, here's this thing. It might be too powerful. Uh, so like, so like it's in your hands. So Wizards of the Coast kind of takes it onto themselves to provide a balanced experience for players. Whereas MCDM says like, here's this awesome content. It's on you to make sure that like the game is working correctly at your table. And you might have to ask yourself, is it worth Wizards of the Coast's time to try and provide that balanced experience for people? Because no matter how hard they try, the pa like a paladin in the hands of somebody who really knows what they're doing is is going to be very different from the paladin in the hands of a new player. Uh, so is it is it kind of a lost cause for Wizards of the Coast to be as concerned with balance as they are? Is is the question that maybe I have for them? Okay, so let's dive into the actual mechanics. There's a lot of content here to cover. We're not going to go through and read through every individual ability. What we're going to do instead is we're just both going to talk about the one feature like in each of these sections of the content that we think is our favorite or maybe our most inspiring, the most noteworthy, and we'll talk about maybe why we like it so much, and then we'll move on. So, Ariel, the core class features, what piece of the core class features speaks to you the most? I think the first one is actually a great place to start. I always look at the low-level character features when I'm getting inspiration and evaluating things because that ends up being what I play or what I DM the most. Most of the time I start with low-level characters uh, and then we don't get to the super high levels as much. So I really like the Infernal Conduit. I, I think it's the first class feature here, but it takes this idea of lay on hands but it also drains health. Uh, and you can use that within your party if people want to, which is kind of a, it's almost like using your phone battery to charge someone else's phone battery or, or vice versa. It's a little bit just like sharing the, the little energy that's left. But it's a very cool feature. I really like when you have classes that have to get up close and personal and touch something. So 
The Infernal Conduit, I think, is extremely thematic, but it's similar to this Paladin ability where you get to, you know, give hit points or, like, heal hit points in some ways, but it's the dark side of it. It's, you know, a contract, which I think is very good for this, like, devilish, hellish thing, this idea of, oh, like, if I'm going to give life, I need to take life. So I, I thought the Infernal Conduit was a great start to the class in terms of giving a level one character something that they can show up to a group and, oh, why is this person should be in our party? What can they offer? And it's like, oh, I can do this absolutely insane thing. We say that the Illrigger is kind of like a, a counter paladin or an anti paladin. And I think a lot of folks maybe see some of these abilities that look like derivations of the paladin's abilities. And they say, and they point to them and they say, look, 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 it's it's the same thing. It's it's just like a reskin of the paladin. I think it's different. Like I, I feel like MCDM looked at these features that the paladin has and they said we could come up with something different but it it strikes a really cool shadow or like um counter image to the paladin if we can get some of these abilities some of these iconic abilities to look similar but be the like evil version of that ability so being able to like suck hit points from one place whether it be an enemy or an ally or yourself and deliver them elsewhere is this way of still being able to support your your party being able to to revive people bringing them up from zero hit points but it is the the evil hell knight version of that ability and i think it's it's very thematic and very striking right i think it's giving this dichotomy that is really fun in fiction and fantasy where, you know, you have the Jedi versus Sith and they both are using the tapping into the same magic of the world. But what is the dark side? And I so I think giving players some level of comparison to Paladin is part of the fantasy fulfillment that this class can give. So leaning in at the right moments to what is this character in contrast to a paladin can make your inspiration for how to play the character very fun. It's saying, oh, I can heal you, but you get to roleplay maybe taking personal damage and taking your own health and sucking it away from you and, and healing somebody else. That can be a really great roleplaying moment just to get this idea of what I have to give up in order to heal uh, as opposed to a paladin who can just bring the light to you. I think that is a really nice foil for how you can play as a paladin versus how you can play as an Illrigger. And then many of the other class features either have some similarities to paladin, but other abilities have no comparison at all to the paladin abilities and really let you play in this space of, okay, an Illrigger is different. These are your, these are your things that you get to do that are unrelated. Exactly. And I think the example that I would give of, of that first ability is very similar to you. I'm going to choose an ability that you get right off the bat. Um, level one is an ill rigor is this forked tongue ability. So I'm just going to read the ability because it's so short. You have a facility with speech and know how to manipulate an audience. Whenever you make an ability check to persuade, deceive, or intimidate, you can treat a d20 roll of seven or lower as an eight. Additionally, you learn the infernal language. So we've talked a lot about like having a character concept online at first level. If your fantasy of your character is that they're kind of like wit from 
uh, the Stormlight Archive. Sorry, it's top of mind because I just finished reading the first book. Or you're, you're any of these kind of like bardic characters that we've seen in fiction that always have something clever to say, something smart, something that is going to allow them to navigate politics. And you don't want to roll lower than an eight because you as the player are saying these clever things, or at least you, you like to imagine that you're, you're saying clever things. And then when you roll that low dice roll, it kind of like destroys that connection you have between the fantasy and the thing that actually happened because you like delivered this empowering speech. I love this ability. I don't think it's too strong. I think I think a, a, a floor of an eight is not all that much. It just gives you that ability to be that reliably charismatic character and face for the party. And I, I love that you get it at first level. Yeah, the, the floor of an eight is an interesting way to give a bonus to an ability. I think taking out the idea that you are not bad at this, you are good at this, let's show that is a really fun thing and i think something that can be frustrating as DD is that if you are a barbarian and you are really strong sometimes you roll low and you don't get to be strong so i think this kind of fulfills that role of your character is just good at this and that is a nice feeling and a nice way to have a character concept early on the other thing about it is that as you get to higher levels an eight roll is good like you get very big bonuses in Dungeons and Dragons. Let's not forget, if you're a player who plays mostly at low level, a lot of Dungeons and Dragons is playing the game with plus 10s to your rolls. It happens very often. Yeah, I mean, already at first level, you're you're probably not rolling lower than a 13, actually, right? Because you're going to get plus 2 from your... Uh, proficiency, which you're probably putting into these abilities, if it's part of your fantasy, to be good at these interpersonal situations, and you're getting a plus three because you're putting that one of your plus threes into your charisma modifier. So, a thirteen at first level, you're going to be able to you're going to be able to step up and face for the party with confidence, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a good choice because I think it really does fit what we're talking about a lot of time is at, at level one you have two abilities that really get to set you apart from anybody else you have you know high charisma characters uh some of the time but this is a character that is the uh the steady hand and i think that's a really ideal place for a knight that should have some real level of authority to them if you're a knight from hell you shouldn't be messing up and tripping over your words so if you're looking to in a situation where you're talking to a new npc and you're like looking at each other in the party and you're like oh who do we want to lead this conversation you have like the steady hand the cool knight who doesn't really take anything uh too difficult in in too difficult a manner is takes everything in stride is always collected that's a roleplay situation also. The fact that you don't mess up is also a character concept. You're good under pressure. And I think that a knight from hell should be good under pressure. Where is there more pressure? Where is there the situation where if you make a misstep, you get punished? You know, this knight from hell is never going to make a misstep because if they did, they would have been 
killed or banished because they live in a world where mistakes are punished very mercilessly. I, I kind of like that. Right. They, they deal with demons and devils on a daily basis. Like, how could they ever roll lower than an eight on a ability check to persuade or deceive? Yeah, they would, they would not have made it where they are. Yeah, even as a level one character, that's such a great thing to remember. You have gotten somewhere. You have made it to be an adventurer, to be more special than your average person in this world. Uh, you got to where you are because you you towed a very fine line working with devils and demons to rise up the ranks. And you wouldn't have been able to ride that fine line if you were tripping over your words. So I really, I think it's a, a character building feature that you can really play with as a character concept when it's not that obvious that this is a role-playing ability in that way. So let's move on to the the first subclass. So third level is when you choose a specific lord of hell that you are going to not serve, but to kind of, you're going to create an affinity with this lord of hell and and kind of decide to serve hell in their image or their likeness. And the first subclass is the painkiller. So you decide to um, you decide to attune with or kind of like pledge a level of fealty to Dispater, the Lord of Dis, which is the city of war. This is the Darth Vader Illrigger, which I think is such an awesome archetype. Unlike the other Illriggers, you get proficiency in heavy armor, so you, you can walk into the battlefield in plate. This is the Death Knight kind of subclass, which I think is just such a such a strong fantasy archetype. It, it's present in so much literature. I think that of all of the, the Illrigger subclasses, this one is probably the closest to something you could achieve with maybe an Oath of the Crown Paladin. And the other subclasses start to diverge from things that you can do with a paladin much more significantly. Ariel, what's your favorite ability that you get as a painkiller that you don't get as other types of ill-riggers? So we didn't coordinate this before. I wonder if we'll have the same one because I look at this subclass and just from the name of the class feature that I'm looking at, how could this not be your favorite? So you read through, you get a lot of cool stuff, and then you see the 13th level class feature, subclass feature for the painkiller. And it's, you die on my command. And I can really picture Matt Colville saying this to their players. Uh, if he's, you know, an NPC Illrigger fighting against the party, I, I just really picture him. It's a, it's a very, I think, Matt turn of phrase. But uh, the ability says that when an ally within 30 feet who can hear you drops to zero hit points but is not outright killed, you can use your reaction to shout an order at them, causing them to drop to one hit point instead. You cannot use this feature again until you complete a short or long rest. So what this is, is very tied to the passing from the material world on. You know, your soul leaves the material world after they die. But if you're a knight from hell, perhaps you have some sway over whose souls go where. And uh, this one says, not today. You are staying right here. You have more work to be done. I am going to use my, uh, my sway, my position of authority to tell you that 
your soul staying right here. I think commanding a soul is a really, really thematic way to show that this is not just a powerful, you know, fighting evil creature like a paladin. This is something that is really tied to hell, to the, you know, other plane of existence. Definitely. Yeah. Like so thematic, just like you don't get to die. I'm not done with you yet. You still, you still serve in this fight. You know, like dying is too easy. Oh, so good. I do like that ability, but my favorite is the, the by the throat ability. So starting at seventh level, you can, as an action, place a seal on an enemy within 30 feet. And if they are large or smaller, they make a, a wisdom save. And if they fail this wisdom save, the target is grappled and they are restrained. So this is the force choke. Your Illrigger sees like an enemy commander and they're giving, they're giving like orders and you get within 30 feet of them. You extend your arm out. They fail this wisdom save and all of a sudden they are restrained and you have your, your hand out and you are like force choking them. Just such a cool ability and it, it you even get the thing that lets you force push people at ninth level just so cool i love it i think that if i was going to play an ill rigor this would be the one that i would want to play do you know what i would do with this if i were dming your character i would give you a way to improve upon this giving ways for your characters to improve is always great in DD. it's like finding the magic item you can have magic items that are more powerful than class features i think that is a big part of the history of Dungeons and Dragons. And so I don't mind finding in-game ways to basically make your character overpowered. I think that's part of the history of Dungeons and Dragons is leveling up in ways that aren't just on your character sheet. I would try to come up with a way that you could maybe go and learn from another more powerful Illrigger how to stop the creature that you have by the throat from speaking also so it's like they actually have this like grapple around their neck such that they can't give commands if they're a commanding officer they are not just restrained but they can't cast verbal spells because you literally have them by the throat yeah just the force choke from the distance uh that would be awesome i would love that so much and i mean that's that's a lesson for dms out there that like the the thing that you decided to tack on there isn't significantly better than the core ability but as a player i would covet that increase in power set way more than like like a staff of thunder and lightning or some sort of some sort of like way more powerful item that is not thematic or does not further my fantasy of this character yeah i do really love giving improvements to players that I think they would personally be excited about. Certainly the magic item supply kind of creates its own demand. Like if you give players a magic item, they will probably enjoy using it and mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be specifically catered to them. But if you can specifically cater something to your players, I think it will be so fun for them. And having these power-ups be something that is within their fantasy, within their character class concept can be really fun. Okay, well, moving on. Okay, so the, the Shadow Masters, you pledge yourself to the, the Lord Malak, and he is the Lord of Sticks, the City of Lies. So as a Shadow Master, you are, you are the kind of like Loki, which is awesome. Like, finally, we have a, a way to play as Loki. 
you have this ability to kind of like turn invisible and use illusions to to stealth around and you uh finally have a way to use daggers in a way that is like very effective so i think the biggest criticism i've seen levied against this subclass in particular is that it could have been a rogue subclass yeah that makes sense yeah but it, but i would say my my argument against that is we see lots of subclasses in D&D that bring classes closer to other classes. So the sword bard is kind of like the rogue bard and and I think this is this is the assassin illrigger. So I think you could create and like very similar to I think maybe like the soul knife is maybe like the the illrigger rogue, you know? Yeah, interesting. I think that's mostly true that the more material, published material there is, even from just Wizards of the Coast, the more you blur the lines of the classes. If they're going to publish something new, it's going to have some overlap with some features that an existing class has. I think that's pretty natural. Right. Like, what's the difference between the Eldritch Knight and the Bladesinger? There are tons of differences, but can you achieve the fantasy with either of those two combinations? That's Wizards' intention, I think. So, so yeah. So, I, I think that's a fair criticism but I don't think it is a criticism that invalidates the existence of the Shadow Master because it is cool. It's definitely my second favorite of the Illriggers. So, Ariel, what's your favorite feature? Yeah, I went with the feature that I think is a little bit more interesting to me than some of the kind of more just like makes you better at what you already do features. So this one is the Shadow Killer, so it has a great name. I, I think naming things well in fantasy is actually a important thing for good Dungeons and Dragons. I, I don't know. There's something about the, you know, George R.R. R. Martin, I think, really is so excellent at naming things that it really makes you feel like the world and setting you're in is different and fantastical. So I, I love a lot of these names. I think Shadow Killer is a great one. In this one, you gain dark vision. Okay, you can see normally in magical darkness, which is also a nice feature. But those are a lead up to this idea of mastery of darkness. And I, one of the things I love in Dungeons and Dragons is when you get good at something such that it doesn't affect you anymore. It's not that you have mastery over it, so you deal more damage in this type or something. It's that, oh, I have mastered flames and fire. I have lived in the flames. They can't harm me. Gaining resistance to it, I think, can be just as much of a power fantasy as being able to use it. So in this case, uh, any illusion spells that obfuscate don't work on your character. So what it says is blur, mirror image, invisibility. Uh, you can see the exact locations of any creature within 60 feet that's using these. Which is really interesting that not only can you just see invisibility, but also... If someone is using invisibility and hiding somewhere else, just the fact that they're using that magic, it sets something off in your mind. Like, oh, somebody is trying to use the shadows. Somebody is trying to use magics to conceal themselves. But like, I am the master of this. This is my domain. I control the shadows. So if you're casting invisibility, I know about it. If you're casting mirror image, I know about it. If I was DMing a a 17th level shadow killer. So one of my plays was a, a 17th level Ill Ill Rigger who had the shadow killer ability. I would send like 
a squad of shadow monks and um, soul knives after them, where these assassins have the ability to turn themselves invisible or cast darkness. And I love the idea that these abilities are nothing to this player who is the ultimate shadow. The other player characters who are with them would be very thrown off by these abilities. So it would it would showcase and highlight how cool it is that this player is like the king of the shadows as opposed to, I think we as DMs have this way of kind of like, we're trying to challenge our players. So yeah, we, I was going to say this exact same thing too. Yeah, we, we like see we can see the things that aren't going to work on them. And as a result, we don't even bother throwing them at them because it's not interesting. It's like, it's like, what's the point of showing throwing an invisible enemy at your 17th level ill rigger who can see invisible in enemies? It's so that they can feel freaking awesome. That's why. <laughs> so you got to do it. The same reason that you throw... 10 goblins at your newly minted fireballing wizard because you want them to be able to use that fireball and feel like it was as effective as it should have been or could have been yeah i was just remembering when i started dming i read these reddit articles about how to challenge your players and it was class by class and it's like how to challenge a druid how to challenge a fighter and it had this write-up of what are things that will be hard for them to deal with. And I think that that is a very fun thing for a DM to do. But the flip side is, I think, sometimes more important. How can I put things in front of my player that they are effective at, such that they can feel effective and they can feel great? It's this a little bit of this idea of DM with the players versus DM against the players. And I tend to think that both are extremely fun and useful ways of thinking. You know, when I'm trying to beat my DM because I think they're throwing all hell at me, it's really, really fun, and I like winning. But there's also the idea that if my DM is supporting me, that feels really good too. So I'm imagining, you know, you're like, oh, well, if they can just see everybody that's invisible, maybe that's boring. But I'm imagining you go into a room where you're meeting the king of a new kingdom that you're you've just traveled to and the shadow killer the shadow master walks in and it's like did you know king that you have 30 invisible spies in this room right now <laughs> you know something where your mastery of these elements shakes up the scene yeah like or perhaps the king's guard are invisible like that like that's a part of their thing is like he has elite guards that are always invisible nearby and you're able to like see them and stuff like that yeah i just i love that i love i love giving your players opportunities like like teeing teeing it up giving them the opportunity it's like you know this thing that the other players don't know what would your character do with this information and how or if like would they even present it to the other players and just giving, being generous to the players in that way. Right. And this also kind of comes back to a concept we've talked about of letting your players be in control, letting them have the DM moment a little bit, where if you pass a note or send a text message or a chat to a player that says, these are the invisible characters in the room, this is where they are, this is who they, what they look like, uh, you give the, your player, this shadow master, the moment where they get to describe the scene to the other people in the party. They get to tell them and decide when to tell them 
what they see and what's in the room. And I think that is a really great moment for the Shadowmaster who is should be in control and should have the ability to describe what's going on to the other players because they're a figure of authority. They're an ill rigger. They, they're in control of the environments that they're in. That's what their job is. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. My my favorite ability on this class is actually not all that exciting. It's kind of like a it's a ribbon ability, I think. Um, but it's I think it gives precedent to do this with other classes, and I think that's what I really like about it. So my favorite ability is dagger adept. All it is is quality of life improvement. So the whole idea is that like this class is the like the assassin dagger class. So so you you need to provide incentives to your players to keep using daggers. So first of all, it makes it easy for you to stow and put away daggers. And it also is going to increase your damage that you deal with daggers over time. At fifth level, you're going to deal 1d6. At 11th uh, level, you get 1d8 damage. And then at 17th level, you're doing 1d10 damage with your, your daggers. And I think this is really important because all too often we see rogues who the the fantasy is daggers. Like that's the that's the thing. The like the assassin who is lethal with the dagger. But now all of a sudden, all of all of these rogues are using rapiers because rapiers deal one d eight damage instead of one d four damage. So I love that this class says like, hey we're going to give you a bigger damage die with daggers. This isn't even a power increase. We're just making it so that your daggers are as good as the other weapons already have access to. And I, th I think that's really nice. And I'd, I'd like to see that kind of given in other situations as well. Like maybe with like dual wielding fantasy, like can we make dual wielding better so that it's as good as the other fighting styles? Right. I, I think that's a really good point. Just that your high level characters or your characters at any level they want to optimize but they also want to play their class and with the dagger adept i kind of end up giving players magic daggers a lot i think this is pretty common to think of a uh, magic dagger deals plus one damage or has um deals like plus a d4 of ice damage for something i think that's a pretty common magical item to give to players that want to use daggers because it doesn't feel overwhelming it doesn't feel like a big ask and from your player's perspective they go somewhere and get an enchanted dagger that feels very natural but i think underlying that is the idea like why is this such a popular thing why is this happening all the time it's because daggers can feel underwhelming sometimes to players they want it to be more special they want it to be more personal and so Putting that in as part of the class is, I think, a really smart way to give a character the ability to use daggers and feel good about them. And that brings us to the last subclass. And this is actually the subclass that you have had the opportunity to play, Ariel. So why don't you tell us about the Architect of Ruin? The Architect of Ruin is the subclass that works with Asmodeus. And so this one gets spellcasting. I think Asmodeus is... Uh, a wily villain in a lot of senses. So this is a smart character that gets to really use all of their spellcasting abilities to control the battlefield and do some interesting things. So there are a lot of things going on in this subclass. There are new spells specifically for the Illrigger that are definitely worth checking out. There's a lot of things that this character can do. I think one of the things that I specifically found 
extremely fun when I got to play this, where each subclass has these interdict improvements, and we haven't really gone into them because some of the other class features are very exciting and we wanted to talk about them, and there's so much content in this Ilrigger class that we couldn't possibly go through all of it. But this is one I found particularly fun. There's this interdict improvement that starting at 10th level as a reaction, when you cast a spell, you can consume a seal. So these are the interdicts are related to these seals where a seal is a kind of almost a curse or a level of magical control that you place on another character or another creature. And it, you can consume that seal at the right moment. So it's like marking them and then eventually you consume the seal for different effects. And so for this effect, uh, you get to impose disadvantage on their saving throws against the spell that you cast. And I really thought that this was, it just felt like I was a powerful caster. It just felt like I could have my way with anybody on the battlefield. That I could, if I didn't need to worry about whether or not my effect was going to work, I could cast a high level spell that was, you know, risky. And it, it wasn't really a risk. I was in control. I got to have that sense that, you know, Asmodeus is empowering me and because of this extremely strong place of authority that I'm coming from, like, I just get to impose my will on any creature in the battlefield. I, I thought that that was a really good way of getting the Illrigger to feel like a force, like a real force of nature on the battlefield. That I And, and the ability, the interdict improvement is called Submit with an exclamation point. So it really is, you know, it's it's forceful. It's You are causing other people to submit to your willpower. I, I just thought that was a very exciting improvement, you know, that doesn't often show up in Dungeons & Dragons. Getting disadvantage for other creatures shows up a lot less than getting advantage for yourself. Yeah, definitely. And this isn't something that is is new, I think, the idea of, like, lowering the chance of an enemy's saving throw succeeding we see it with the the new bard subclass that was released in tasha's the the bard of eloquence which i actually think came from theros you get to expend a bardic inspiration to roll your bardic inspiration against the saving creature's chance to succeed in the saving throw so definitely i don't i don't i don't think it's too powerful I think disadvantage on a save is more potent because the the difference is that you're going to get a more average result. And especially at 10th level, your spell save is very high. So bringing that, that number to the average is, is probably a little bit more effective than just a, a straight subtraction. But yeah, I mean, it's awesome. Just this uh, this ability to every once in a while choose to succeed on a spell that's going to harm another creature and the the spell list for the ill rigor is not all that crazy so i think i think that's an important thing to realize is that you aren't forcing this creature that you've targeted to fail on some of the most debilitating spells in the game you're you're forcing them to fail on perhaps a more reasonable spell. So I would definitely recommend taking a look at the Il, uh, the Architect of Ruin spell list before maybe passing judgment on whether or not this ability is too powerful. Right. I'm looking at the fourth level spells. This is for a 10th level character. 
I mean, the the way that I used this most effectively was with Banishment, which I think is in a spell that is very tricky to use because it really feels bad when they succeed on their saving throw. It's not one of those situations where you deal half damage on a, on a save or full damage on a failed save. Banishment is all or nothing, and it has a enormous impact on the battlefield. It's like it's you know it's a touch of death almost in many situations because getting rid of one important character in a fight allows you to kill the other one immediately and then come back and kill this creature that was banished when they return absolutely yeah i think that if i had seen polymorph on this spell list that would have been the the indicator to me that this ability is too powerful uh, because once once you succeed on polymorph, you can kind of like bring the enemy wherever you need them to be. So you could kind of like drop them off a cliff and deal many, many d6s of fall damage. So sure, you've banished this enemy and, and they are no longer in the fight. But you have if you banish the boss monster, that boss monster is coming back eventually. Yeah, you can clean up the adds, which is very helpful and very useful and a great use of this ability. But they are coming back. And as a DM, you you know that your players have this tactic and you you perhaps give your boss monster the ability to summon more adds like as an action um, to kind of like hedge against how debilitating this ability can be. Although, you know, I feel like many a good DM will just be like, I don't have glyphs in my game, right? I don't want to create situations where somebody takes 200 falling damage. No cliffs. Everything is flat ground. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, there, there's like my fantasy world just doesn't have. <laughs> exactly. No elevation change. Yeah, like I've, I've done this before where I just have I wanted the like battlefield to feel cool. And so there's like lava around and you're like over a volcano or something. And you're just like, oh, your character fell into the lava. Well, I did see this coming. Uh, but also, you know, I wanted to make it so that you wouldn't fall in the lava, but. You did fall in the lava, and now you're dead. I'm sorry. Exactly, yeah. This was, like, this was not the plan, but now that it's happened, there's really no way around it, so I'm sorry. Um, yeah, okay, so so my, so my I have I have a hard time with this, with this subclass. I think, I don't think that it is, I don't think that it's straight up overpowered. It's definitely very potent. It is. It is it is more than a half caster, which I think is important to point out. You're you're a you're a delayed caster, so you you have the same spell level progression as a full caster. It just starts at level three. So to even say that you're a two thirds caster doesn't is isn't correct. Like this is really more of like a four fifths caster or like a, or a three fourths caster. You're like almost basically a full caster. Right. And by the way, you have extra attack. All these subclasses have extra attack. And you're getting the feats that are like necessary to have as a as a melee spellcaster. So like Warcaster and the the abilities granted that allow you to like maintain concentration in battle. You're getting those as class abilities for free. So I yeah I, I don't know so, so much how I feel about the design of this class. Right, this is something that you have a lot of experience with, having designed a spell casting but also melee character, and I think it is touchy because if you if you want them to be good at both things, where where do you pull back? 
And in the case of the Architect of Ruin, one of the things they do to pull back is to delay the the spell progression, like you said, but I think most classes that Wizards does, this is a little bit of that difference in philosophy. They really dramatically reduce the spellcasting ability of the melee casters that they have for the most part. Some of them are a little bit more spellcasting focused for sure, but they don't typically do a progression like this. I, I don't know, Ray, you're a little bit more familiar. Does this progression exist in Wizards material? This doesn't exist in Wizards material, even in Unearthed Arcana, which is not is not an indicator that it's bad no, at all. No, it's just the d- difference in design philosophy that we were kind of talking about. You get a lot of spells. You get powerful spells. I mean, I tend to think of a uh, fifth-level spellcaster as having some extremely strong battlefield mechanics, and that would be seventh-level for this character. So seventh-level is, you know, a pretty normal level to get to in a campaign i i think at seventh level you are a powerful caster for this subclass yeah and you and you're getting even more spell slots because of your interdicts um like you're able to consume seals for spell slots instead of using spell slots so but at sixth level uh you you learn if we fast forward to fourth level spells you pick up greater invisibility you can cast greater invisibility once you learn it at ninth level, six times because of your interdicts by consuming seals to spell to cast the spell instead of instead of using your spell slot, which is really good. Yeah. <laughs> so especially because you are a melee combatant, so you're able to you're you're invisible and you're able to attack without losing your invisibility and you have extra attack. Yeah. But like you said, it is important to note which spells are missing from the Igor Rigor spell list. Because if we look at some of these third level spells where I think you do have a little bit of spike in power sometimes, we don't see haste, we don't see slow, you know, fireball, obviously, a lot of very powerful spells are not on the spell list. So I think that they did kind of have this spell list as a limiting feature in mind. And I think they did a great job. Like I think the I think they the spell selection is really good. I think maybe I think maybe the thing that screams out is me is maybe just a little bit too much is this idea that you can use seals to cast spells instead of spell slots um, because it kind of invalidates the idea that they are kind of this spellcaster with less spells and less spell slots than a full caster because it they, they kind of are a full caster uh, um, like when you take these abilities into account and and are more effective than some full casters because of all of these extra abilities that they're picking up is that other classes would have needed to spend feats to pick up. Right. But one of the things I think is interesting about this comparison to other classes is I think that they these are very comparable to abilities of other classes, all of these subclasses. You know, they, they do touch on some of the abilities of other classes. So the Illrigger doesn't get heavy armor as part of the class level. And I think that's very intentional. Whereas a paladin or a cleric, uh, I think, maybe not for a cleric, maybe maybe just for paladin, but you do get this heavy armor proficiency and it does kind of limit your design space. And so I think it's interesting that if you want to be a knight from hell, the only way to do that to be walking around with this like, you know, really, really intimidating plate armor is to do that through 
the painkiller subclass. So I think that design choice, when I first looked at the class, I was wondering, oh, why do I have to choose this one to get the heavy armor? I kind of wanted to be a heavy armor character. Makes a lot of sense after you read the other subclasses. Definitely. And I think the all of this is still inspired. This is one of the most compelling spell sword attempts that I've seen because you do get access to abilities like blur and invisibility. So I really like it. I think it's awesome. My favorite ability, which I have been I have been withholding up until now. Yeah. Um, Tell me. My favorite ability of the architect of ruin is there the spellbreaker ability. So if someone targets you with magic missile, it's so specific, um, or or a line spell, or a spell that requires a ranged attack roll. So if you if you get attacked by a spell that's targeting you, on a one to five, you are unaffected. So you roll a d6. First of all, you just you nullify this ability that's coming at you with your invoke authority, which you get to do once. And on a six, not only are you unaffected by the spell, but you reflect it back at the caster as if it originated from you, turning the caster into the target, which I just think is awesome. I love that so much. Yeah, it's so thematic. Extremely thematic. It's really driving this narrative of control. You You have control over the battlefield. You have control over what is happening. And in this case, in magics, and I think that having a Hell Knight really have control over their surroundings is shows up in all of these subclasses and is very important. I really like it. I think it's really inspired and it's it'll change my design probably um, going forward with, with spell swords that I design myself. And that's, I think, can happen for anybody at the table. If from your perspective, you are going to, you know, be designing things in the RPG space, this is inspiring to you. But if you're just at the table, you are also a little bit of a designer. You get to ask your DM, can I do this instead? Can we reskin this? Or you get to choose like which features to really work with. And maybe you get to kind of thinking about, oh, well, if this worked a little bit differently, I could be way more powerful. So maybe you try to multi-class with some other character uh, concept that has, you know, been existing in Dungeons and Dragons for a long time, but now it can be reshaped with adding the Illrigger on as a multi-class. There's a whole little multi-class section in the um, Illrigger, so you know that's something that the designers have thought of. If this is inspiring to you, Ray, it's going to be inspiring to people at the table designing their own character and being a designer for themselves and for their game. I can't think of a better way to to sum up and finish our episode. Um, Ariel, do you want to take us out? Sure. Thanks for listening to our review of the new MCDM subclass, the Illrigger. Until next time, I'm Ariel Raska. And I'm Raymond O'Connor. And thank you for listening to Running Off the Rails. If you enjoyed Running Off the Rails, please like, follow, and review our show on your platform of choice. Please follow our Instagram, Running Off the Rails, for notifications whenever we release a blog post, a new episode, or new content on the DMs Guild. If you prefer a specific type of content, please send us a message on Instagram. The jam you are listening to is Hoist by Andy G. Cohen, and you can find Hoist and more of Cohen's music on the Free Music Archive. You can find links to all of our content at runningofftherails.com or on our Facebook page, Running Off the Rails. 